Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today on the Autosport podcast, we're going, certainly for me, very much off-piste in the world of motorsport. I have to say, drag racing is an area I know very, very little about, I have to add uh, to my shame, particularly with the the company uh, we've got here. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and our, shall we say, star guest, with respect to to my other two guests, our star guest today is uh, Anita Makala, four-time FI European top fuel champion and reigning. Uh, a legend of uh, of drag racing i would say thank you yeah <laughs> uh, so uh here to educate educate me certainly i think would be the uh would be the main objective i'm hoping to get to the end of the, this hour or so with a, a better understanding I, I guess it's the challenge isn't it with drag racing of selling selling it to people because it's kind of a bit of a very specialized isn't it that's right it's very small sport but there again uh, i find it very enthusiastic and uh, well that's the sport i've been doing 30 years and i just love it well, excellent. We will find out uh, a bit more about that love of uh, of drag racing uh, shortly. We have brought in a, another specialist as well in uh, in Robin Jackson of uh, best to describe you. I want to say of Santa Pod. <laughs> yes, of Santa Pod. I guess yes, yes. I do. I, I work for them in a sort of part time uh, basis, but I've been coming to Santa Pod. It's been in existence for fifty four years, and I'm horrified to say I've been going for fifty three of them. So. And I've been working for them. I did uh, essentially um, a 40-year apprenticeship uh, as a paying customer, and then they offered me a job. Uh, so I've been working for them now for 12 years. Well prepared, you could say. Well, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, I hate, hate to think how much I've forgotten, put it like that. <laughs> You've probably forgotten far more than uh, than I know on this topic. And my final guest is somebody with uh, with a little bit more knowledge of drag racing than me, but still, should we say... 
a relative, uh, relatively inexperienced in Autosport magazine editor Kevin Turner. Now you have been, you have been at Santapod relatively recently. Yeah, thanks to Robin, I've been a, a couple of times. Once when I was Motorsport News editor, and then once um, uh, this year. And um, I put it down as one of my three sort of standout wow moments in in you know my motorsport career, if you like. The first one was watching a Formula One car, contemporary Formula One car, through Maggots and Beckett's at Silverstone. The second one was the first time I saw an LMP1 car at Le Mans, and the third one was when I first saw a top field dragster leave the line. Um, you know, you've, I've been going to motorsport events for years and years, and you kind of get a, you're with the same Ed, you kind of get an idea of what's quick and and what you're looking at and you have to completely recalibrate that uh when you see the top feelers can leave the line it is quite one of the most remarkable spectacles in motorsport i would say you sold it very well there very very well i'll have to uh, have to get along fairly uh fairly sure well, let's come back to, to you anita how how do you come to be a drag racing well I'm say enthusiast but how do you how did you get into it and come to be so successful uh, over the years I just got interested overall in muscle cars and uh, I just wanted to test one of those dragsters. It was like a gas dragster. And uh, once you give you a small finger, it will take your whole hand. And that's the way how the sport took me. I established this team myself. So I'm very few of those ladies who are having their own teams. And uh, maybe the most important work what team owner can do is to choose the right people in right places. And that's the area where I did succeed. And that's behind of my success of these all 30 years. So good team and um, it is teamwork at its best. Everyone knows that in motorsport that uh, drivers need a good team. And um, by the good team and when you're having success, it will always take you even faster and faster cars. Now I'm running these 10,000 horsepower cars, nitro top fuel tracksters, and they are going from zero to 100 kilometers per hour within within a, uh, within one and ha- uh, within half second. So it's very quick, half second, and you're going already over 100 kilometers per hour. That's, that's just outrageous performance, really, isn't it? And uh, but it's interesting you're saying about how it applies to all of motorsport really it's about having the right people the right driver the right equipment it's everything isn't it it's a it's a a virtuous circle as we say but robin perhaps you can put a little bit of context for us on on anita for those not familiar with 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 her achievements i mean obviously full-time european champion is a serious achievement all in all in top fuel which is kind of the the top end isn't it that's i guess that's the the category that people think of when they think of formula one of uh of drag racing yes i mean it's exactly the same formula one is is the pinnacle of uh an enormous pyramid really with you know tremendous amount of stuff below that and and top fuel is the same with drag racing you know there's a huge amount of uh stuff below that i mean you can start out it's an extremely accessible sport um, you can simply come along to at Santa Pod. We have what we call our Run What You Brung events, where you simply turn up uh, in your own road car. Uh, £10 per person on the gate, £25 to sign on, and you've got all day uh, running on the track. And that's the basis of the thing. I mean, drag racing started in America after World War II as essentially a road safety initiative. You had all these um, sort of ex-servicemen coming back from the war, often with uh, mechanical training, and this hot-rodding craze took off. And the way that they were proving their vehicles, 
they weren't demonstrating clever driving skills or anything. It was actually proving the vehicles against one another was by racing on the streets, perhaps from traffic light to traffic light and so forth, which of course was hugely uh, illegal and dangerous. And most people kind of wanted to horsewhip the people or you know lock them up. Um, but a number of enthusiasts instead tried to persuade them off the public roads and on to, in those days of course, there are a lot of now disused wartime airstrips uh, around America. So they, they used uh, those and they decided by chance on quarter mile as being the classic distance that sometimes at that point they were thinking in terms of perhaps a half mile. And can you imagine, you know, if we were running to a half mile now, what on earth uh, the cars would be doing? Um, so it, it grew from that, um, and that element really continues, as I say, with the, the, the run what you brung uh, idea, um, so, and you work your way up from that uh, with Top Fuel Formula One at the very top of it. I think it's worth putting some numbers on that, actually, because uh, it's now the, the Top Fuel cars run over just a thousand feet now instead of the quarter, That's right. quarter mile, and even so, they're doing that distance in... 3.8 seconds and yes. doing 330, 330 yeah. Yeah. so I mean yeah you couldn't because it was reduced wasn't it for safety reasons That's right, so yes. if you can't yeah. imagine what speeds would be being achieved if for the last 50 years they've been doing it over a half mile I mean the mind boggles the measure I suppose is the eighth mile the 220 yards at one point of course before they reduced it that was half track and certainly in America now there have been cars hitting 299 miles an hour at the eighth mile um, and typically uh, a dragster will will gain perhaps 30 40 miles per hour over the second half or in this case the you know from the eighth mile to the thousand foot point which even in that distance on an ordinary car gaining that amount of speed in that distance would be quite a lot but when the, the blooming thing's doing 290 plus you know already um, the, extra the, the acceleration is extraordinary in the thing. So they get progressively slower, in fact, as they go up the track. But, um, you know, all things are relative. <laughs> and Anita, I mean, the, the forces involved must be unbelievable. So what are the biggest challenges on a run? What are the things you're most concerned about or most focused on from the moment the lights go and you go? What, what are the key things that you're dealing with? Of course, first of all, you have to learn to drive these. Are you using miles per hour? You have to use... We, we do normally, yes. Yeah. But. So you have to get used to run over 300 miles per hour. You can't just step into the car and do it. So it takes a time to learn to do that. So you have to control the car all the way. So um, on the when I'm launching the car... And uh, maybe at the beginning, your vision is coming very narrow. But when you learn to drive that kind of speed, it will spread out again and you can make observations and you see where you're going. And that's very important because everything happens in such a short time, especially on the top end. And uh, you, have to, you have to know where you are and where the car is, where, where you are going to take your car to. And... Uh, uh, on the midway, the G-force is about 5.5, so it's at the biggest on the midway, and then it will calm down until you go over the finish line and open the braking suits. But it's the, it's the driver who needs to control the car all the way, but everything happens in the, 
faster than you can uh, think. So you have to respond of the feeling. So I'm having like a spot in the middle of the track and I feel where my car is going. It's going like left or right. So it's my like vision which keep it in the straight line and my feeling with that. And tire shake's quite a major thing as well, isn't it? I mean, that was something I noticed was, you know, sometimes you have to shut it off straight away because once that really kicks in, it's it's kind of all over, isn't it? So what can you do to, to manage that in the first few yards of the launch? As a driver, you can't do anything. It is done by the mechanics already, the way how the car is going to behave. And uh, 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 tire shake is something that, uh, uh, because we have 0.8, the pressure in the back tires and it will uh, grow when you push the pedal down but it, if it doesn't have enough power to make the soft tire round one it will cause the tire shake and the tire shake can be so severe that it will break the chassis cut the chassis and uh, of course will give you as a driver a very severe headache and that stuff so it's like hitting by a baseball bat very heavily but okay, you can't drive that, so you have to lift the pedal, and uh, the moment is gone. Uh, I'm interested in the the question of the kind of the amount of driving because people look at it and think it's driving in a straight line, but it, it's I guess when you're actually in it, it's not really, is it? There's a so many adjustments I guess to make to make sure it's uh, it, it it's still going in the, in the right direction with that amount of power. You know, incredibly challenging and kind of quite easy to underestimate from the from the outside. And uh, the most common thought after a run is that, why didn't I do like that? Because the moment is gone. You know, you have to make the decisions so quickly. And then you did the de- uh, decision and you can't catch the moment back anymore. Yeah, there are so many things you have to concentrate and do. And um, safety is number one issue in our sport of course and you have to realize that there's another car next to you and you have to keep your car in your own lane um it's not the top speed it's what can have what's go what can go possible what can possibly go wrong in that kind of top speed what can cause the problems and you have to be prepared for that to avoid that that it doesn't get out of your control so i presume the problems that might manifest themselves when you are closer to that top speed, they start mm. earlier, so you need to learn to recognise right. a small problem now that yeah. in a second and a half is going to be a a, a huge problem. That's when you that's right get out of it. Yeah, I've, I've had people say to me sometimes, um, "Real motorsport has corners." That's what some chap said said to me once, and I I point out, well, I drive around corners every time I go out in my car, and it's no big deal. The point is what's your purpose in driving around the corners if you're driving to the shops that's one thing if you're racing somebody else to the finish line that's a totally different thing and whether you're driving around silverstone for two hours or 24 hours at le mans or a standing start quarter mile or thousand feet that becomes an entirely different exercise from just essentially going motoring so whether it's corners or not uh what um makes drag racing stand out i think is its decisiveness um you qualify against the clock yes but then it is head to head the winner go advances to the next round the loser goes home and and there's no next lap on which to rectify any mistakes you might have made um it's an extremely decisive sport in that respect so uh, and you only have you know a matter of seconds uh, to do all that 
Well, it's, it's like any top-level sport, isn't it, in the sense that whatever it is, yes. to win is hard. It's extreme, um, yes, absolutely. Because, and, you, yeah. you know, and it was saying about having teamwork, you know, a lot of the themes will be the same. Yeah. So my, my response to somebody that said that would be, well, to come and have a look then. Yeah, absolutely, basically. yes. And then when yeah. you... Especially if you're there early enough in the day that you see the sort of lower classes, if you like, the feeder classes, and you think, okay, and you get your eye in, and then it, it <laughs> as, the, as the day progresses, it becomes more and more crazy, really, more and more, more and more impressive. I suppose the, the other interesting thing from a, from a driving perspective is with that amount of power, I guess the, the thing, it's, I mean, it's like a start in a normal race, isn't it? So it's getting that power down, getting to kind of full throttle as but how, how do you control that amount of power? I mean, obviously, you talked about you've got got the, the sort of low tire pressures and you know trying to get that bike. But that, how much of the run is just sort of controlling that power? Do you ever? How easy is it to get it to kind of a hundred percent throttle and everything stable, or does it never get to that if you're if you're going quick? Yeah, as a driver, there isn't very much to be done because you just push the pedal down and keep it there, and uh, it's all about mechanical adjustments yeah. and what they've been doing there, and. Uh, it's like a straight pull, there is no gears, but there again they are coming like timers which are uh, putting like more pressure into the clutch discs and uh, it's like activating them on the run and uh, and you know, uh, it's controlled, the whole run is planned to the Pacific track and what the mechanics look, mechan- uh, the crew chief looks that it's going to be like this and so the car needs to be just like this way. So it's decided by the crew chief, mainly what's going to happen. And, and I guess adapting to conditions, I guess as the day goes on, there's more rubber down. Yes. You know, just... Temperature. If the sun is shining, if the sun is behind the cloud, everything affects. And there's no sort of active electronics going on, is there? It's all, cause is it a 12-stage clutch? Is that what you're up to now? I remember you saying that there is a multi-stage clutch that feeds in as you go down the run, but you can't have it electronically no. reacting, can you? You have to sort no. of effectively mechanically decide beforehand. That's right. So it's, it must be a real fine art, all that sort of uh, setting up process. Yeah, and for example, like the clutch disc, the hardness and the thickness and everything is influencing to that. And everything is measured very accurate way. And try to make we try to make the car always the same way as it was before the run so that the crew chief can make new decisions how to make it go faster if it would be different after each run it would be a possible uh, imp- uh, impossible job to do so in qualifying rounds we always try to make the car the same way so the crew chief can make his own adjustments to make the car faster and that's why we have so much work to do between the rounds you can have all the torque and horsepower in the world and it is completely useless if you can't apply it to the track. And Then if you can apply it to the track and you have the quickest car in the field, it's still completely useless if the driver snoozes or doesn't, you know, fails to control the car properly. So it, it's those split-second things that can determine the outcome of a race. And obviously you're talking about tiny margins in terms of the, the race time, so sort of, you're talking four, sub-four-second runs, and I guess just sort of hundreds, thousands deciding. Not a lot of time to do anything in that <laughs> uh, that speed. How <laughs> interesting, Kev, obviously you went recently, and, and for me, you know, even this talk about how the, the, you know, the clutches are set up, already I'm sort of finding that very interesting, thinking, wow, there's actually a lot more as there always is with anything like this, when you start learning it, 
but but I guess it's quite eye opening for you to see how it how it all works and really get an understanding, not just the spectacle which you refer to, but just the just how complex the challenge is and and all the things are going on that you you could never guess just from watching it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's like anything. The more you delve into it, the more complicated and difficult and sophisticated uh, everything is. Um, I mean, not just eye opening, eye watering. I think we should also cover the fact that the that the ninety percent nitro methane fuel is very potent. So the things that part of the spectacle as well as the speed, one of them is they are the loudest. First of all, they're the loudest cars. Uh, I think I've ever seen. I remember the first time when Robin said, do make sure you get some earplugs. And, you know, people say that at racetracks all the time. And, you know, I like hearing it. And you go, oh, oh, no, no, definitely that was the correct advice because you just, you know, it, it's it's amazing. You can hear it through your feet. It's the only thing you can hear through your feet, I think. Well, that and I suppose a, a jet fighter on takeoff or something. Um, and the other thing was um, you know, Robin um, took me around the, the, the paddock. It was a very open paddock. Um, and we're fortunate enough, if that's the word, for one of the uh, one of the cars to be fired up, um, and it you know it it's it's pretty well. I think you described it as tear gas. Tear Robin. gas, it's, yes. It's yes. Uh, you know it's it, it isn't a sort on the sensor, but all of that has to be managed. You know, it's not just chucked in. You know, it's very exact measurements, obviously strictly regulated. But that's something presumably the team have to keep on top of a lot as well. Is there a lots and lots of restrictions? It's not just oh here's a big powerful engine, we'll go and run it. There's lots of tight tight regulations as well like any top sport isn't it that question of the the restrictions is interesting because it it, do, it still feels like say a top fuel dragster is in a world of motorsport heavily restricted it's still quite quite raw as well but how how wide-ranging are those restrictions i guess there's capacity limits that kind of thing but in terms of how much you can do has it has it changed much over the years has it been more, more become more controlled more restrictions and, and how how tightly controlled is it the, the actual formula has been constant since the early 1980s. The NHRA brought in the 500 cubic inch rule uh, for uh, dragsters, um, uh, for top fuel dragsters in, I think, 1981. That was settled on um, that long ago. Uh, and, and what's remarkable is how, uh, how things have progressed in that time. Um, the, the the superchargers aren't any bigger, 1471 superchargers. The the nitromethane hasn't got any nitromethania, as it were. Um, and yet, through constant refining, they've gone from in those days, they were running the quarter mile in five and a half seconds at, at, at you know, maybe up to 250 miles an hour, to, to nowadays hitting... Um, uh, well, over the thousand foot feet, you know, down three point eight seconds or so at uh, well over three hundred miles per hour, and and that has simply been through constantly refining uh, the equipment and and the machinery, um, and uh, yes, where you know Formula One, for instance, the formula is changing every few years. They they put in something different, but it has actually stayed constant uh, with with drag racing, um, which I guess. Uh, Everybody complains about the expense of drag racing, but it could yet be even more expensive if if they were chopping and changing the formula. So, what are the key technical areas uh, that, that those gains are coming from? Um, because I know the Americans are a, are a fraction ahead, aren't they, on the, yes, the top end yeah. times? But I mean, they've got four or five times as many events in the that's in a right. And they, so they tend to have more money as well. I more mean, when, money, when Anita comes things. to <laughs> twice a year, Anita comes to Britain. She has two ocean crossings to do for a start, 
um, and you know that doesn't come cheap. So um, the what made a big difference in the mid 1980s was the development of the of the lockup clutch. Uh, uh, before that, uh, data recorders. Now it's a uniquely violent mechanical uh, environment, uh, and they eventually developed data recorders that could function in that. And one of the things they discovered was that clutches were still slipping at the finish line. So they started to develop these uh, initially two-stage lockup clutches, but things that would actually lock up properly at a, at a given point on the track. Nowadays, it's multiple-stage lockup clutches, and that has made a great deal of difference. Um, but again, you know, the engines back then, I don't know, were making four or five thousand horsepower. Now they're actually measured as putting out over eleven thousand, uh, which is, you know, a monumental amount of stuff. Not for very long, but when they're doing it, as you say, boy, do you know about it. Um, so it, it's it's those refinements in particular, and particularly the development of the clutches. You mentioned the, the expense. So what is the, the ballpark cost for for running one of these cars. One thing is, uh, which differs our sport from the other motorsport, is that if you have a race car, you can't race with that. You need to have spare parts. For example, when we are coming to FIA event, we can have we are having four qualifying rounds, and then in elimination round uh, day, the maximum is th- uh, three rounds. Because, you know, on the first round there are eight cars, then four cars, and then it's finals. So, um, we, are, we have to be ready to make seven rounds in a weekend. And when we are leaving Finland, we normally have seven ready short blocks with us. Set of heads for the same amount. And a lot of spare parts. And uh, in the qualifying days... We are changing the parts, like I told you, that we are building up the car to be exactly the same way before each round so that the crew chief can make the adjustments and try to make the car even faster. And uh, when you're asking about the prices, it all depends if you can keep that uh, package in one piece or not. So um, you can use, like in America, they don't, they just throw the parts away and get the brand new ones from the shelf, so to say, because they are professionals and they are racing in different level compared to us here in Europe. But because we don't have the money to do so, we are trying to measure if we can still use the parts, like pistons and rods. Pistons are getting squeezed when you run one run, or the rods can be getting too uh, length, uh, the length can grow. So we are measuring that maybe after the race weekend and uh, if it's still intolerance we can still use them so um, money wise everything is depending what has happened to the parts but overall idea is that if you have six races a year it will take you about 200,000 euros up to I mean over that whatever you break so if you push the pedal down and something is going wrong, you can destroy the whole engine from oil pan to the injector and everything between. So nothing can be used. But sometimes, for example, the injector can be used or the cylinder heads can be used or the blower or the block or whatever can. So it depends what happened. But uh, it can be a disaster and there's, it's like a bottomless dwell. You can always put more and more money and uh, there's no, how to say, 
there's no limit for that. But uh, with 200,000 euros, if the re- uh, season is going reasonably well, you can live with. It's standard practice, of course, after every single run, that the engine is dismantled completely and rebuilt completely, and indeed any other damage to the car has to be repaired. Um, there's less pressure in this country, but in America, in the NHRA, because they're on live television, uh, they have an hour between rounds, and they will complete the whole dismantling and rebuilding process in about 40 minutes. Everything completely is stripped stripped down. <laughs> Just to sound absolutely ridiculous, considering uh, what, what you're dealing with there. I mean, do you see some of this going on when you... Yes, when I, when I spoke to Anita at, uh, in September, there was a, there was some serious engine work uh, going on. Although I think one of Anita's team's strengths is not having these cataclysmic engine explosions very often. I mean, you've you've had a very consistent season, haven't you? Um, and I think that's that's probably part of the game as well. Is how much do you do you push it, especially it's when you're into the sort of the knockout stages, getting to the finish in a re- you, know, you don't have to break the European record every time, do you? You need to get to the end. Um, whereas, uh, you know, some of the, I mean, when they when they go, they go. They're not. They don't really do small engine blowups, do they? I mean, it's sort of an earthquake happens. Yeah, that's right. And uh, that has been my behind of my success that the consistency is in a key role in our team, or has been by so far. And uh, that really helps if you can be consistent. And we do also see, in terms of getting through parts, I guess even anyone who's got the vaguest idea of what drag racing is will have seen some pretty enormous shunts happening uh, particularly with the top fuels you know cars cars destroy so i guess that's the other kind of risk as well that you can you can do a lot of damage but i guess that's something that is as you talked about earlier in the hand of the driver in terms of detecting when things are going wrong earlier on and avoiding getting yourself into that situation as far as as far as possible but it's it doesn't look very safe let's put it let's put it that way and i can tell you that uh uh, me as a person, I'm how to say like a housewife. I'm a farmer, chicken farmer, and I I don't take any risks in my life. But I just drive this ten thousand horsepower top fuel dragster, and I don't feel that unsafe, because maybe because my family is involved with building up the car, my husband is uh, seeing overall that the car is built in the right way. I feel safe. Uh, that that reminds me of other drives before, particularly when they've been looking at perhaps a slightly older racing car to what they're used to, and they sort of walk up and go, "Oh, that looks uh, that looks unsafe," and they get closer and closer, and go, "Oh, that looks interesting." And then if you sit them in one, off they go. That's, they don't think about it anymore because they're in their environment. That's not what they're thinking about. They're thinking, "How do I go quicker? How do I win?" It kind of goes away, doesn't it? The more you're into it, the more it all falls away. Absolutely, you are right. That's the way how it goes. <laughs> They're very strongly built uh, drag racing vehicles. Sometimes people, again, think, oh, it only goes short distance in a straight line, not much to it. But um, the drivers, of course, are cocoon- cocooned in a roll cage, which you don't get uh, on circuit racing cars because you need lateral vision, whereas you don't necessarily in, in a dragster. So you, ha- you have this um, uh, unit that you're uh, um, sort of cocooned in and... I mean, some crashes that you see in drag racing, of course, the problem with circuit racing is going straight ahead when you should be going around a corner. It's the opposite in drag racing when you go around a corner when you should be going straight ahead. Um, And not so much in top fuel, but pro-mod cars, which are the full-bodied cars, 
they they frighten me. Um, they have very low downforce, but they can hit you know over 240 miles an hour. And sometimes you see them get the air under them. They get a wiggle on, and you can get some really monster uh, crashes. But invariably, I mean, touch wood, uh, he says, touching his head. Um, Drivers very often will simply walk away. You cannot believe some of the accidents you, you see, but the drivers walk away uh, from them because they are so strongly built. I'm glad you mentioned ProMods, actually. We should probably cover that off because that is the national championship. I suppose very loosely you'd say it's the sort of British touring cars of British yes. drag racing. Yes. And actually, I think the budgets aren't dissimilar. Speaking to a couple of competitors, it actually wasn't wasn't a million miles out as well. Um, but they are... They're, I mean, obviously, they're, they're, they're nowhere near in terms of uh, performance as the top fuel cars. But I, I, I noticed that as well. They do sort of skip and dance because the top fuelers have you know, a huge rear wing and they look, you know, they're, they're, you know, obviously the dimensions are such. Um, but with the, with the Pro Mods, which is sort of, they're almost, they're silhouette cars, aren't they? So yes. they look like yes. Chevy Camaros or Mustangs or whatever. But obviously, they're all bespoke silhouettes. But they do skip and dance because they don't have, particularly they don't have much aero at all do they they're kind of to me they're a little bit like a historic racing type way of going about it um and they, they do skip and dance of course there are three different engine types you can have yes, in that that's right as well so yes. you uh, drag racing has its equalization issues the same as circuit Absolutely. racing as well do we yes. want to talk, talk about the three different categories within the, the national championship well, the original uh, pro mods were um, unblown uh, petrol engines with uh, uh, nitrous oxide injection and then they started uh, incorporating um, uh, uh, methanol engines or alcohol engines they call them in the states blown alcohol engines as you would find in a top methanol dragster that type of thing and then the last 10 years or so they've gone turbo as well um, so you're and, and of the of the original type, the the nitrous engines, the unblown nitrous engines, they go to absolute monster sizes. Uh, they're unlimited, at, effectively. Aren't they, uh, effectively, yes. I think the I think the limit at the moment is nine hundred and ten cubic inches. So you're looking at getting on for fifteen liters. Um, I mean, all packed into a. Um, you know, a V8 block. Um, somebody once described them as miracles of rotating mass. I mean, it's one thing to say you have a big engine like that, but getting the darn thing to work at that size is is a most extraordinary thing. Um, the the uh, the supercharged uh, methanol engines and the turbo methanol engines are smaller capacities, but it is uh, the the effort to try and balance those out and equalise them that uh, is a problem, and and it is. Uh, the Pro Mods are the designated class of the Motorsport UK, formerly MSA, British Drag Racing Championship. Just going to also mention that when you say their turbos and superchargers are limited on capacity, they are still over 8 litres. Oh yeah, they? they're still... I yes, mean, we're still yes. talking... Yeah. You know, if you think people talk about Can-Am and um, when Porsche obviously brought turbocharging into that, uh, people like McLaren were saying, oh, can we get any more out of the Chevy's 8.2? I mean, you know, <laughs> 15 litres... Um, with with the non turbocharger supercharger and eight liters over eight liters for the other two is pretty impressive. And I think really for next year in the states uh, they're raising the unblown limit to nine hundred and fifty nine cubic inches. I think so. You are looking at I think uh, over probably over fifteen liters in that. So, but I'm alright in saying yeah. at the moment in this country at least the supercharging seems to be 
marginally the one to have. They, yes, yes, they they tend to go. You get the higher speeds from the turbo cars. They tend to launch more slowly, but then gather speed more quickly. So the European uh, record is held by a uh, speed record held by a turbo car at 260 miles an hour. Um, but the uh, elapsed time records uh, have been held all along by um, supercharged methanol cars. So um, there's you know not a huge amount to uh, choose between them, but it's certainly the the traditional unblown cars that seem to be seem to be at a disadvantage. Has anyone ever tried to do a sort of a Lancia Delta S4 approach, which is well we'll bolt a supercharger and a turbocharger that can operate in different parts of it, or is that that explicitly forbidden within I, the I rules, think that presumably. Is explicitly <laughs> forbidden under those rules, yes. But I dare say that people have attempted that kind of thing in, you know, in outlaw. I mean, this is how the Pro Mod started for as an outlaw class uh, in America. Um, they they decided to do a few races, particularly in the Deep South, where they go in for their full-bodied cars. I mean, it's the home of NASCAR. Um, and uh, back in the early to mid 1980s, a, a, a few racers there decided they wanted to break away from the rules, and they were particularly keen on the 55, 57 Chevy uh, shape. They were known as shoebox racers, and cramming big engines into that, uh, they became very popular, and out of that became this distinct class known as Pro Mod. It is quite fun trying to spot the sort of silhouettes, what they're what they're based on if yes. you're sort of a newcomer but you've got motor racing back and yeah that's a Camaro that's a because the one, car that won this year was a, a Plymouth Superbird wasn't it that's which right is, yes. is another, yes. which is a, I mean it wasn't but it was mm. if you see what I mean mm. and that's uh, mm. yeah. we have more diversity in Europe we, we're slower than the Americans needless to say on the pro mods but uh, um, my more diverse body shapes you go to the States now and uh most of the pro mods seem to be either uh, current vehicles or late 1960s but you know you come here and we 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 are the earliest type body shell we've had here is a 1938 ford coupe uh last year's winner not this year's but last year's was a, a 1951 chevrolet business coupe um a swedish car um and you know great character that these vehicles had and yet it could still run like the clappers too it's interesting, obviously, there's, there's references there to what they're doing in the US, and the US is kind of the home of, of drag racing and HRAs that they focus on. But just you know, it's taking you back to when you started, obviously, you got the, the, the interest seemed to come from when you were in the US, but I think you started in, in Finland, didn't you? I mean, at that time, what, what, what's the sort of difference? What, what was going on in Finland? What were you, what were you racing against? And how, how, what's it like to operate in, the, in kind of Europe as a, as a drag racer compared to kind of perhaps what people might be a bit more familiar with in in, uh, in in the US? Well, I started, of course, uh, with the gas tractor, which are much slower than compared to these nitro tractors. So the first steps racing in Finland, uh, it was all about American cars. And uh, they were like uh, ordinary street cars. And like Robin said, that it's all about the history of who is having the fastest car. And... Uh, those days are, so to say, gone in our sport, and everything is coming more and more like professional racing. And over the years, um, of course, we are following what's happening in dates because they have so much more races in annual paces there compared to us. So all the development is happening there, and that's why all the parts are coming there as well. A lot of the cars come from there, don't they? They're bought, bought over to 
to Europe. Do, have you ever had a sort of a, a desire to go and compete over in America? So there have been a few Europeans that have have gone on, gone along and, and tried. Some of them have been quite quite competitive, haven't they? So is that something you've been sort of tempted by to sort of go and go and see? Well, I have to tell you that I'm so happy here in Europe. I have here, I know the tracks, I know the officials, I know the fellow racers, I have my own friends at the raceways, so I'm happy here. Maybe in the early days, because there was like a difference between American tracks and European tracks. So we Europeans, were, we were dreaming that it would be so cool to go to American tracks and see how my car would work in a, such a good track. But now the tracks here in Europe are so good as well. The difference is, how to say, getting smaller and smaller compared to American tracks. So I don't see uh, that I can do very much faster in states anymore uh, due to the track anymore. So I'm happy here. But obviously drag racing, it's kind of a minority part of motorsport in Europe, isn't it? It's not so many doing it, but it's, I I presume there's quite a, a small but very determined and enthusiastic group of people doing it so i guess it's like you say you know all the people chat so i guess it's quite a a close community around around europe it is it's like the uh when i'm thinking that what keeps me hooked to the sport one thing is beside of course ra- actual racing is the social life there because um we are like good friends and we we are staying the night over at the pit area, most of us. So we are having, how to say, like a time to have like a chat and get to know each others. And that's part of our sport as well, the social life. And uh, I'm very fond of that as well, because at the pit area, the life is, it's unclean, it's a bit dirty and uh, it's not, how to say, luxury life, but I love it. Well, I think that that's, but that includes the fans as well. I think that that's why, I mean, I was quite taken aback when I first went, the number of people there. I mean, it's an equivalent circuit, bearing in mind that it's not a big circuit, you've got people spread around. You know, I'd, I'd liken it to a, a, a good British touring car crowd, you know, so top end of a national thing or a big historic meeting or something like that. But I think part of it is because the, the, the crowd do feel involved, not just because they can see the whole run, but so when the crew goes to join the driver at the end of the run they quite often they're waving they get a bit of a cheer especially if it's been a good run everyone kind of it does feel like everyone's involved in it and and all the although i'm sure there are fans of individual drivers and teams everyone just wants to see a really good run they just want to see the numbers come up at the end with a you know a record run or a personal best or something and i think everyone kind of gets a bit invested in it it's it's actually quite a theatrical sport in as much as it all takes place in front of you uh, on on the stage, as it were, whereas you go to a circuit race and people drive past you and then they vanish and then they come back and drive past you again. All this, the entire drama of the thing is carried out. E- each individual matchup really is a drama in itself and you, it gets it takes place on the stage there in front of you and you've got the audience uh, you know lined up on either side around it so it it gives that kind of amphitheater uh, atmosphere perhaps and it's not just the race either is it because there's the the burnout at the start Absolutely. and some drivers seem to do most of the run before mm. backing up again mm. so that's kind of nice and spectacular and then they're edging forward into the box so it kind of even though they're quite short runs there it, it is like a sort of a very short episodes of a of a drama each time yes also, one thing that's been mentioned kind of in passing with uh, your team, Anita, that is kind of a family 
the family team, which I guess is, well, not unusual. It sounds like that's quite an important thing. And so, so have you kind of, did your family, have you sort of roped them all in or is it, would you describe yourselves as kind of a drag racing family effectively? Uh, just Bobby Lagana from State who once said that the family that race together stays together. And if you can share the same passion with your family, hey, how lucky you are. And um, I'm blessed with a family who is, who every one of them likes the sport. Of course, when the kids were young, like uh, five, six or seven years old, they didn't have the choice to stay at home if mom and dad went to the raceway. So we always took the kids with us. And uh, obviously there are years that they get a little bit bored, but you know, kids... They easily pick up their own small tasks. They can clean something. And when they feel that they are part of the team, that keeps them hooked as well. And they are now part of the team, aren't they? That's they're, right. They're, they're actually... My daughter, Hannah, uh, she's working and helping with the cylinder heads and uh, sampling the short blocks with my husband. And my son is taking care of our clots. So it's really family business. So you're quite pleased that they've gone down the sort of engineering mechanical side than the, oh, come on, mum, I want to get in and have a go. <laughs> but there again, one day, if that happens, um, maybe I will join the mum's club and I'll be worried what will happen if I'll give this car to my dear daughter or son. And uh, it's kind of funny that when you're driving yourself, you feel how to say, I can handle this. But can my small daughter or son do that? Or even my dear husband. My husband is having a top fuel license as well. So it's different if you're driving yourself or give the car to your dear ones. Maybe you should do another public vote. Didn't you do a, a public vote <laughs> with your husband to see which one of you would get the get the drive? That's right, isn't it? Yeah, in the early days. But it's it was more because of fun. Yeah. But you won by miles, didn't you? <laughs> well, my dear husband is so gentleman. He always says that, Anita, you can have the seat. You did, ha you did have kind of a break in your career, obviously, because you had a, had a family. And almost those four titles you've had, three of them have come in recent years, so sort of in the second half of your, of your career, shall we say. So that, I guess that is quite unusual to see sort of a career break and then come back and be even more successful. That's right. I think that's very common in the women's sports overall, whatever sport that is, that uh, when you're having your family after kids, your career is done. But uh, I had the possibility, okay, it was Tommy, my husband, who returned back to racing. And uh, I just went to see Tommy's racing with kids. And I noticed that my our kids were grown so that uh, they were not dangerous to the cars anymore and the cars were not dangerous to the kids. And uh, then Tommy said, that, would you like to try? And I said, yes. And here I am. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> and it's probably worth mentioning the range, isn't it? Because your first title was in 2000. <laughs> um, and you think of what was happening elsewhere in most sport, to put it in context. You know, Mark Schumacher was just about to win his third Formula 1 world title. Um, Jason Plato just started in British Touring Cars. So that's... Uh, that's an incredible longevity to you know, remain competitive over that time. Is that is that quite normal? Do people stay in drag racing for a, for a long time? Well, in Europe, at least. Oh, yes, and in America as well. There are people who are having a, like a long career. But um, even after 30 years, I still feel that I can learn more. 
and uh, that keeps me still driving. I still feel that, first of all, of course, I have to be competitive. I can be competitive and I can still learn and I can still go faster. And in our sport, uh, the experience play, uh, plays such a big role as well. The more you know how to handle that 10,000 horsepower cars, the more you can, the better you are. Although, of course, the age might slow you down, but uh, the other areas, you can still, how to say, uh, you can still be good or better than the other ones. Well, it's interesting because I kind of think of drag racing about reaction times and that kind of thing. So I kind of automatically think it would be kind of a very young person's game, but clearly it, it isn't. And I guess the fact you're being so successful now, so you were most successful in the past few years, does support what you say, that you know, experience is incredibly valuable. Experience is... Uh, the book, What Can Possibly Go Wrong in Drag Racing, is very thick. And although it is very short time we are driving, but so many different things can happen. And um, if there's like a small mechanical problem, it all about, it's all about if the driver can still handle and take the win, although what ha- whatever happened. And uh, maybe the thing is that whatever happens before you are going over the finish line, you have to try to do your best. And after you're gone over the finish line, then the game is over. And you never know. The other one might get broke just like a few centimeters before the finish line. Never give up. And um, my car is built that I don't actually see the other car at all. I don't ever know where the other car is. Of course, if it's so much in front that uh, it's obvious. But if it's like next to me, we don't know which car won we race. So when we go over the finish line and uh, slow down and, and just wait for our crews to come and pick us up, uh, we don't always know which one won. But when we see the tow car coming with horning the car and blinking the lights and cheering out, okay, that's my car, my tow car, I might warn you. That's a, give, that's a giveaway then, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wonder actually on the experience point whether it's you were talking about like, identifying problems before they develop, and probably I imagine, and this is true of motorsport generally or sport generally, you probably so even if your reaction times are falling away slightly, you probably make up for that by identifying that potential problem earlier because you go, oh, this is like a bit of subconscious thought. I imagine this is like such and such a time. I need to do this to stop that happening. Whereas somebody who doesn't have the experience, it's happening and they're reacting to it, and you, uh, but you've already sorted the problem out that's right yeah absolutely but you can be i mean if the car, other car works like as it's supposed to work then it is how to say hard to beat if there's like a mechanical problems of course you have to try that you occasionally get what is known as a pedal fest um in eliminations obviously it's who gets to the finish line first that wins and it doesn't always mean that you're you're running to maximum uh, we, uh, an extremely good example of that was um, the European finals about seven or eight, eight or nine years ago. Um, when it came down to the championship, came down to the very final run, the final round between uh, Ursa Erbacher and Risto Putianen, another uh, Finnish driver. And both of them struck the tyres at the launch. 
um, and uh, they were on and then the off and on and smoking the whole way up and it was it's one of the more most memorable final rounds that anyone has ever uh, seen in actual fact I think um, and uh, you know they they managed five or six seconds I think in the end when they got there but it was it was this on off on off uh, all the time neither car was working as it should have done uh, but get to the finish line first and you know the winner was the champion for the year so and that's where the nature of the event changes isn't it because during the qualifying heats if you do have a problem it's normally a shutdown and absolutely just, yeah. there's no point in putting strain through all the components whereas once you're into the knockout you never know if someone's having an even worse problem than you so you just you just have to keep going i'd say i do like some of the terminology in it Words like pedal fest. It's, uh, it's, it's quite good. It's from your eyes. Uh, one thing I, want, I always like when we've got a star guest on um, to uh, embarrass them by asking an expert about how good they are. But where, where does kind of Anita sit in terms of the greats in, in drag uh, racing in European? And Anita currently is, is the European drag racing superstar. Um, her victory at the European finals in September was her 15th uh, FIA top fuel win, which puts her six ahead of the nearest challenger on the win list and there's about what so, half a dozen events a year so it's... uh yes 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 so um she's dominant um at the moment and she's one uh, of well at, at the european finals we had eight top fuel cars and four of them were driven by women um and uh, anita only qualified third i think didn't you on that but come uh, the, the eliminations day, absolutely scythed through the opposition, uh, who who you know weren't up to scratch and so forth, and yet uh, Anita won it straight through. Um, so extremely uh, impressive display, dare I say. So Anita, are there, are there any particular drivers you're looking out for that? Uh, say for next season, you're thinking mm, they're going to be t- difficult to beat, or, or are you so focused on your own game that you're not really too bothered who you're lined up against when i wake up on sunday morning i'm th- i'm only thinking that whoever is coming i have to beat if i want to win you have to beat them all if you want to win you have to beat them all so i keep on telling that myself and actually i don't pay very much attention who is on the other line i guess that's the key isn't it all of motorsport focus on doing your own job get everything right because that's there's enough to worry about without thinking about what anyone else is uh, anyone else is doing but um Obviously, Robin, I'm very keen now on getting to, to uh, Santa Pod and some racing action. This is a good chart. I was, I was just looking through your actually the Santa Pod, very very busy event calendar. Actually, we have it's, it's over seventy packed. events now in the course of the year. Um, not all at weekends, um, and not all listed on there. I mean, we have drifting events almost every week. I think Wednesday afternoons, which we don't advertise. It's not a spectator event as such, but uh, is packs the place out with with drifters. They all all come in. So, uh, and there's essentially something for everybody there. Of the conventional drag races, as it were, there are only, well, there are a few more now. I think there are probably only about eight in the course of the year. But so many other things, I mean, Volkswagen events, they're some of the biggest that we have, and different uh, different car marks and uh, uh, family events. Um, and you have your own historic event now. Obviously, I'm obliged uh, to say this because yes. any historic uh, tends to get me going. Yes. So you've got, yes. your, is it drag, drag, drag nostalgia? Yeah. Well, we actually have That's four historic like events this. on that. Yes. Yeah. Nostalgia drag racing is what it is. Drag nostalgia. Um, and that's a relatively recent event. Dra- uh, nostalgia races have been taking place 
since the 1990s. Um, they tended to hold them at uh, the now defunct Shakespeare County Raceway, Longmaston near Stratford-on-Avon. Um, but we developed uh, Dragstalgia, I think 2013 was the first year that uh, it was on, and it's now become a very large uh, event. Um, but we also have uh, a couple of other, uh, the Hot Rod Drags and, uh, and uh, the Nostalgia Nationals, which both uh, um, migrated over to us from uh, Shakespeare County. Uh, and there's also the Vintage Hot Rod Association have a race as well. So you're quite uh, well covered, you know, if, if um, historic drag racing is your thing. Uh, but drag style certainly is, is the biggest and best of the lot. And one, one other thing worth mentioning, um, no, no one's primed me to say this, but I mean, the, on the face of it, it's quite complicated, the different classes. Like if you're viewing a whole event, lots of different classes and, and different things that you can go in for. But in my experience, the, the programs are really helpful. Like they're one of the, the essential reading, I think, if you're a newcomer, to sit there and go through it. And then it, it's really good and it explains what you're watching and then you can get your eye in. I would say, so that would be my recommendation to any novice to go is to get the program. And actually, Ed, you'd enjoy that because at the back of the well, certainly the one I've got, it's got a glossary with lots of those fabulous drag racing terms that you enjoy. I'm, I'm enjoying them and I'm definitely going to get some. I guess the ones that stand out is you've got the first and last rounds of the European Championship. So there's one on the, for those in the UK. Yeah, the Springbank holiday in May, so May twenty second to twenty fifth, and then September tenth to thirteenth for the for the finale. Those are the the ones that uh, absolutely. Say, there there are them. two um, premier races. Uh, we attract a big crowd. We attract all the top teams from Europe. And that's the next time we shall see Anita, presumably, unless you have to be coming over to test at Easter or on something of that sort. But uh, Yes, the, the round one of the European Championships, uh, Springbank holiday at the end of May. Are there actually any other active venues for proper drag racing? No, not any more, sadly. Um, the other MSA or Motorsport UK uh, sanctioned venue was Shakespeare County. and That has gone the way of housing estates, sadly. Um, and then there was York Raceway, which uh, has closed down but is beginning to be reborn again, I think, in a small way for various reasons. So Santa Pod is actually now the only uh, functioning permanent drag strip in the country. I mean, they have they wrote, run uh, drag events at other locations, uh, you know, airfields and so forth, on a on a fairly small scale basis. But you're not going to see the top fuel dragsters and so forth nowadays. Uh, years ago, you could maybe run those on airfield sites. Nowadays, you can't. You need the purpose-built, uh, the proper tracks with the proper safety equipment and so forth. Anita, how many uh, top venues are there in in Finland? Uh, is that sort of there? Is there one go-to, or or, or you got you got more? Only one, one FIA event. But they, of course, there are like a local races as well for smaller category cars, and uh, maybe they are like uh, there are. Uh, two different uh, two tracks in Finland, or and then they have like a street, uh, street uh, which are where the street cars can race, like airfields and that stuff. So, but only one FIA event. So similar to here, then in that regard. Let's get some more tracks. I think let's persuade Silverstein to build one. Some of the F1 circuits have got uh, have got drag strips. Well, on them. famously, uh, 
famously Hockenheim. Yeah, Hockenheim's one Bahrain. Upset all the F1, well, yeah, some yeah. of the F1 drivers that couldn't keep it on the island earlier in the year. <laughs> yeah, Bahrain's got one as well. So there's, there's, there's oh, yes. Well, it's, it's big deal in, uh, in, uh, in Arabia, Bahrain and Abu Dhabi and uh, uh, other countries. It's the busiest form of motorsport, which people don't really recognise. One of your... Um, former colleagues on a on a rival uh, publication several years ago wrote um, a review of motorsport in in the, the Persian Gulf area uh, and I spoke to him after that and he said to me you know what the busiest type of motor racing is there and I said yes I do actually he said yeah drag racing and th- there's a lot of it not not at the sort of top fuel level but um, uh, street cars uh, pro mod type cars and so forth it's uh, it, it's um, a great deal going on there. Yeah, you can see well that fit just from seeing what's on the roads actually there in places like Bahrain and Dubai and and, and Abu Dhabi. Although there is some quite questionable driving there, so so I understand. <laughs> I've never been there, so I wouldn't know. But uh. so I think that's, that's good to. Uh, but yeah, certainly you can see the the, the kind of should we say the American car culture is very obvious there. So that's uh, well, it's good. I guess that's a a kind of a, a growth area. Uh, well. It's been fascinating to to get a bit of understanding of it. Really uh, enjoyed it. I'm I need to work out whether either of those European Championship rounds at uh, Santa Pod clash with Grand Prix next year. If they don't, I'll uh, definitely be along to one. But as always, there's so much more than meets the eye to this uh, to this kind of thing, and also so many kind of analogues with the rest of motorsport. Should we say it's let's say there might not be any corners, but it's, it's still the same thing, isn't it? Thanks very much, Anita Makula, Robin Jackson, and Kevin Turner. So please do check out autosport.com for the latest in the world of Formula 1 and the rest of motorsport. Autosport magazine out every Thursday. The Autosport podcast out normally every Monday and Thursday, and you can find that wherever you found this. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. This year is your year, even if you also said that in 2022. And however you want to make a splash, Mother Nature can help you every step of the way with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Wool Runner Mizzles are shoes made from premium supernatural weather-repellent materials, so you can jump into this year with both feet, rain or shine. 
The high-top runners are made from temperature-regulating, moisture-wicking merino wool, treated with durable puddle guard technology to keep you dry and comfy. And you can take confident strides with supernatural rubber treads that grip for all-conditioned traction and sugarcane-based sweet foam midsoles that put a little bounce in each step. Allbirds is constantly innovating to increase the performance and longevity of their earth-friendly materials. So even on your toughest outings, you'll wear out before your shoes do. This year, make a splash without worrying about getting your feet wet with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Discover your perfect pair at Allbirds.com today. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.